Isn't it wonderful that God is a God of love? That he loves me, that he accepts me, that he forgives me just as I am. The Bible doesn't say, for the world tried so hard. Better? The Bible doesn't say that the world tried so hard that I thought I might help them out. The Bible doesn't say the world screwed up every ounce of effort it has, so I thought I'd loan them something. The Bible says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever might believe in him might not die but have everlasting life. And when we meet together at this time of year, it is a, an, an opportunity for us to really revel in that story that we never tire of hearing, but that others maybe only tune into around this time. You know, the world needs people that will make a clear sound. Um, some of you guys I know do uh, Facebooky type things. I know this because I see it on mine. And I know that some people think that it's an instrument of the devil and all of those things. I probably don't think it's that. I think it's, it's something fairly neutral, actually. But um, I was communicating with some people that I work with because somebody who I work with shared this article. And it's a bit small, but it's written by my favourite person. Actually, if you're a teacher, you probably know that's probably not true. Um, this is Mr. Michael Gove, who got taken out of um, the Department of Education. Um, but he wrote an article in something called The Spectator, which basically, it's a very interesting thing for him to have a view on. He says that Christians in Britain are being cowed into hiding their faith for fear of being viewed as bigots and accessories to child abuse, or simply fools obsessed with genuflection before a sky pixie. And I thought, well, it is interesting how they become, find their faith when there's an election coming up. That was part of my thought. But let me, I thought, let me suspend my disbelief for a moment. I'm sure there are Labour Party candidates I could have put up here as well. He said that, um, he goes on to talk about uh, basically the excuse or the things that people say about uh, people of faith, that um, prayer is now viewed with greater suspicion than smoking crack. And those that publicly profess faith are assumed to believe in Bronze Age absurdities. He argued that far from making people more judgmental towards others, he believes that faith it teaches people true empathy and encourages people to recognise their own flaws. This is my favourite bit. This is what he says about himself. He says, um, I am selfish, lazy, greedy, hypocritical, confused, self-deceiving, impatient and weak. And that's just on a good day, he says. <laughs> but actually, if he actually appreciates that those things are inside him, it does show a different side, maybe, than we've heard. One of the saddest moments I had during my time as Education Secretary was when I took a call from a wonderfully generous philanthropist, someone who gives lots of money to good causes, who devoted limitless time and money to educate disadvantaged children in some of the most challenging areas of Britain, 
but now felt he had no option but to step away from his commitments because his evangelical Christianity meant that he and his generosity were under constant attack. He went on to say, to call yourself a Christian in contemporary Britain is to invite pity, condescension, or cool dismissal. What a world that we live in. And I do believe there's some truth in what he says. But you know, God's made us to have a different sound. The guy who shared this um, is actually one of the deputy heads at my school, and he believes uh, that you can be filled with the Spirit, that you can be born again, and that was why he shared this. And then a whole load of his colleagues who don't believe any of that stuff started attacking him. So I thought I'd throw my two penny worth in as well. And I can't honestly say whether I won an argument or not, because one of the things I'm going to come to today is we don't follow an argument, we follow a person. We don't follow a religious ideal. We have a relationship with a living God. And that's what we can know And that's who we can know. And how wonderful that is that on Easter Day we remember that Jesus is alive and with us. His comment was, this is the new maxim for life. Do good acts by all means, but don't ascribe it to a faith. One of his uh, sort of agnostic, complaining, atheistic colleagues said, if I believe in anything, it's in my will to want to do good. I know I'm a good person. If faith is what matters, who decides what we should have a faith in? Live your life and help people. That's not, and that's what it's all about. And I thought, well, you've missed the power source. What a miserable life that guy must lead. And because um, our God is able, that's one of the things I shared to make grace abound to you, so that in all places and all times you may abound in every good work. Yeah. Um, The so where where am I going? Where am I going? Well, I just thought, wow. All of these words exchanged back and forth in the ether. This will this is connected. You will see there's a connection. Maybe it's connected because it happened to me. I was helping my mum clear out her house on Monday. Uh, probably Monday, maybe Tuesday. It doesn't really matter, does it? Anyway, I was helping my mum clear out her house, and um, she's got a nice lot of boxes with receipts in. The only thing is, every time you get to a box that she keeps receipts in, she's got another box that she keeps the most recent receipts in for the boxes that were... So we found a receipt for a holiday from 1983. That was quite useful. I did ask her if she wanted to get the money back on it, but we decided we probably couldn't. Um, but I, I found this. And, um, and this was really humbling. I actually shared it myself. Uh, words are powerful and live beyond us. When I was born was not that long ago. This letter was written on the April 28, 1970, which was just after I was born. And, um, and the guy who had led the church I was part of then was a guy called, I wasn't actually part of because I wasn't actually born, but yeah, that I was connected with was a guy called John Tunnard, the Reverend John Tunnard, and he'd retired and moved out to the country. But that happened as I was born. Now, because he was a nice man and because he thought about things a lot, he prayed for my parents when I was born. My father never went to church, but he still had a connection with this guy. And I found the letter. 
the 45-year-old letter found in a box, along with a holiday receipt from 1983, a kettle receipt from last week, and, uh, yeah, several other things I won't mention. Anyway, in this letter, is a nice chatty letter. But I read this. How many of you, by the way, reckon you might be, God might be calling you to be a champion of the oppressed? I meant to ask this question. How many of you feel that you might be being called to be a champion of the oppressed? Have we heard that word amongst us? Okay, what does this say? Heartiest congratulations on the safe arrival of Neil Andrew. May he live up to his name and be a manly champion of the oppressed. Oh, I could read the rest of it, talking about mother being okay and so on. But I read that and I thought, God, you've been saying the same thing to me for 45 years and I didn't even know it. 45 years ago, for some reason, my parents chose to give me the names Neil and Andrew. Well, Andrew means manly, which obviously you can tell. (laughs) (laughs) And Neil means champion. And um, I thought... Well, isn't that bizarre? That's been in a box that I have never seen. I have never seen that letter in my life. And yet, when we were married, the guy who married us chose to talk about me being a champion. Now, I know it's the fault of my name. That's what people... When they don't know me, they pick on my name. I could believe that, couldn't I? Or were they just clutching at straws? No. God has something in mind when he names us. And it's not about actually just the meaning of my name, because what do I do if my name means I come from a Greek town called Lydia? What do I do with that? God's name for us is much more wonderful than any name that our parents can give us. God has chosen you to to be something amazing in his kingdom. And uh, I've got to thinking, you know, If this is what a man has said about me, what might God have said about me? What might he have said over your life when you were born? Can you believe? I mean, that's a wonderful thing to have said over you. I mean, I'm just just thinking about it. I mean, the other day we had a a bit of time with... um, with the rights in Elijah, and I managed to make him smile, and I put him down on the rug. So I got real big, big, big appreciation, because I managed to make Elijah smile, their baby, and he was sort of giggling and stuff. When you see something that size, <laughs> what is God going to do with it? It's tiny. And yet God put into this man's heart this idea that I might be a champion of the oppressed. What's God put, what's God said over you? See, his thoughts are far more than we've ever thought of. But there's another thing here. Did that man imagine, see, I'm talking about sharing on Facebook, and Facebook is electronic and it goes, I don't know where it goes, it probably stores it forever somewhere. Did that man imagine that I would be able to stand? He's long dead. 45 years later, with his words in my hand, And that we would be believing as a church that God has said something to us 
about being champions of the oppressed. And that somehow God would put into his mind, amongst a whole load of things about how my mum and dad are, about beating my brother at Scalectrics, and some other stuff about settling in as he moved out into Ipswich, the countryside. Something that had an eternal significance and has an eternal significance. I believe that God's put things in your hearts for one another that have an eternal significance. And that's because I believe that God puts them there by the Spirit of God. You know, we don't happen upon these things. We don't kind of dream them up. So I can't look at a baby and think, what do I want to happen for that child? But the eternal spirit can speak to us. Never underestimate the power of those words. Now you see, here's another thing I've I've struggled with. I started with God loving me. Now for those of you that know me, know that that's something which I actually have to keep telling myself. Because whilst I know it, I don't always live as though it were true. I don't always accept it in my inner self. But God loves us. And there's nothing we can do that will change that. But my challenge, you see, is, or my my problem, perhaps, sometimes I think, can I live up to that name? I want to be a champion of the oppressed. Am I being it? You see, we can hear a, a, a prophecy as a kind of unattainable challenge. And when we see things that don't match up to that standard, we can end up kind of being condemned. Last week, John touched on that sense of shame that some of us were feeling. But you know, prophecy never comes about because of our effort. Prophecy never comes into being because we dreamt it up. Prophecy never has its origin in human will. The word, when a word is spoken over your life, brings the power to see it achieved. And what we need to do is to ride the wave of the Spirit to let him bring us into that place that he has. Prophecy is not something to achieve, but it's something that God brings to pass. There, of course, are doors we can push. There are skills sometimes that we need to learn. Prophecy is always fulfilled in his time. I want to show you this uh, this short uh, video. I think, yeah. So just I'll just introduce it. So um, this is a, a song. It's about uh, five minutes long, um, and it contains scenes from. Uh, something, a film, I think it's called The Son of God. You'll see it's advertised on here. Um, Unfortunately, the special event it was designed for was last year sometime in the States somewhere, but ignore ignore, there's a little caption, you can ignore that, but the rest of it, I believe, will speak to you. See, God's heart for me doesn't depend on what I do. See if you can identify the characters in this movie.
conscience fell A silly little lie It didn't mean much But it lingers still In the corners of my mind Still you call me
Whenever you watch something like that, you think, uh, well, I wonder... We don't know what it was actually like. We just know that some guy called Peter, who'd walked through many things with Jesus, when he met with Jesus the night before he died, was told he was going to deny him, and deny him three times. And, uh, and when you read it in Luke, you read that he denied him for a third time. And Jesus looked right at him. Now, I don't know how many times I'd, I'd read that and thought about Jesus looking right at Peter. I wonder what expression Jesus would have on his face. <laughs> how ashamed Peter would feel. And it's only a film, but there was something in the compassion in the actor's face that I thought, there's something in that about how God sees us when we let him down. I don't know what expression you see on his face when you think you've let him down. But I suggest suggest I've no basis that the film's not actually far from the truth. He's not some distant, far-off, disapproving father, but one who loves us anyway. That whilst we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us so that we might come into his, the inheritance that he promised years and years ago. In Exodus 15, 17, we can read about the inheritance that, that God has for his people, that he would bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you've made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The place of his presence is our inheritance. And Jesus died to make it possible for us to be in his presence, to walk in his presence, to know him, to know that there's nowhere that we can go where his love won't find us. And he's given us a spirit of love and of power and of sound mind. Romans 8.15 says, you've received a spirit that that doesn't make... You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. So now we can call him Abba, Father... You know, when we experience a movement into a broad place, the only thing the enemy has to throw at us is fear. We can go anywhere. But if he can throw fear at us, then we're still stuck moving in our little bit that we know is safe. But God has spoken over us. Go to the east, go to the west, go to the north, go to the south, wherever you place your feet. I will give you the ground. So we need to have the Holy Spirit to work in us, to know that he loves us and to hold on to us even when we get things wrong. That terrible day after Peter denied him, 
Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And, um, and that story is one which we all know. But guys, let's never get tired of it. I'm just going to read you from Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. And they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And they wrote a notice above his head, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were there, uh, who hung there, hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. I was thinking about this and preparing and, you know, often we get into a position of trouble in our lives and... uh, we somehow think that God could just take it away. And the very fact it doesn't get taken away, that somehow he's to blame. And we can say, well, look, you know, God, just, aren't you, aren't you Lord? Aren't you sovereign? Can't you just take this away? And this thief is basically saying that, isn't he? Save yourself and us. He doesn't just say save yourself, though. He's got to tack himself on. Because, you know, this is a mess that God's got me into. I might be a thief all my life, but actually God's put me on this cross and I want you to sort this out. It's just joining in. The other criminal rebuked him. You know, Jesus doesn't say anything to the one who has a go. He doesn't respond to any of the mocking. Um, Perhaps he doesn't need to. Because when the criminal says, aren't you the Christ, save yourself and us. As someone wrote, I I was reading, they said, well, that's exactly what he was doing. (laughs) And the criminal didn't know it. I'm just getting on with the job. Don't you fear God, the other criminal said, since we're under the same sentence. We're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. How different is his perspective? How different is the other thief's perspective? Instead of the accusing that's going on all around, he can see someone different. And Jesus answered him, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Which one, which thief, do I most closely link with? Where do I stand? The one who's angry, accusing. Why is this happening to me? Why do bad things happen? God owes me a better life than the one I've got. 
If you're good, God, can't you prove it? Can't you prove it? Can't you take away this stuff? Whereas the other one's basically saying, I'm, I'm getting what I deserve. Would you just remember me? See, Jesus paid the price that was rightfully ours. The reality is, I find myself in Peter's position from time to time. As I'm engaging with the Facebook page, talking to my friends about uh, Mr. Michael Gove and his views, I'm thinking, this is a whole different community to this one. This is engaging with people that are total intellectuals. They're like, not I'm suggesting you're not intellectuals. (laughs) (laughs) What I mean is, they're thinking up here, they're not thinking down here. Even had an argument halfway through. Some guys would use the word convict, that he felt convicted by God. And he said, oh, that's not really a right word. Should be convinced. Should be convinced. Convicted's not really a word. That's what you do in a criminal court. But I know we would use the word convicted to mean some of that happens in my heart, not my head. But he's, that language is alien to him. And he's so caught up in other thinking that he can't see that. I don't want to deny Jesus in my place of work. I don't want to deny Jesus to my colleagues, to my friends. I want to be able to own him and to give a reason for my faith, knowing that they may well just laugh at me. (laughs) Because, for goodness sake, if you're a real intellectual, you'd never think any of those things, as if I value being an intellectual. (laughs) I am no good without God. I need to die. But he takes my place. See, isn't it funny? Another thing I was thinking about as I was thinking about the Easter story. Isn't it weird? I got sent this as another email. Wonderful thing, the internet. Isn't it weird that Easter is a three-day story? And that Saturday is just not, not really a day, is it, really? We have Good Friday and we remember all the suffering. And then we have Saturday when we go shopping and we do all the things that we might do, unless we do that on Friday anyway. And then we have the Sunday when we remember the resurrection. But for the whole of Saturday, the story stops. And I thought, well, that's weird, isn't it? No, it doesn't, says Angela. If I'd been one of the disciples and I'd gone to the tomb on Saturday, apart from breaking the law because I couldn't have gone there because it was a Sabbath and all that, I would have found Jesus' body. Jesus was dead. His body was in the grave. And nobody knew that Sunday was going to happen. Well, Jesus knew. Jesus had told everyone that was what was going to happen, but no one else was expecting it. And there are times in our lives when we're stuck on Saturdays. When we've had the Friday and the Sunday hasn't come and all we can see is death, really. And I thought, that's an interesting thought. Now when Jesus was in the grave, the Bible tells us that 
uh, he descended to hell and he did lots of things. But I believe that his body was in the grave. I don't think I'm being heretical at that point by saying that. You know, his body was in the grave. He was, his body was dead. He was busy doing stuff, but he was there. And all I'm saying is that sometimes we can get stuck between that sacrifice and the new life that God brings. The trouble with three-day stories is you don't know there's going to be a day three when you're stuck on day two. And days don't have to be days. Days can be weeks long. Days can be months long. Praise God, the resurrection can last for eternity. But sometimes in seasons in our life, we can get stuck in that middle. And I believe that God wants to remind us of day three. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they prepared and they went to the tomb and they found the stone rolled away. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down their faces to the ground. But the men said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. What an absolutely fabulous faith we have. That our God is alive. That he took the punishment that was ours. He took it on himself. That, we were, that he never stops loving us. Never stopped loving us. I used to have a, a 1970s, 1980s poster that said, um, it wasn't the nails that held Christ to the cross, but his love for you and me. Now, that isn't in the Bible, but that doesn't stop it from being true. Jesus could have at any point commanded the angels of heaven to release him. But when he died for us, He was held there by love and compassion for us. Jesus is not some rational argument. He's not just a historical figure that of some interest. He's not some political idea. We can't put him in a box. They put him in a grave and they couldn't put him there. The fight for our inheritance is over. The tomb's empty. There's no more price to be paid. He's done it all. All that's needed for us to know him and to live in his presence. So I I just wanted to, to share these few things, really. That God's love, from the moment you were born has never stopped loving you. The things have been spoken over your life that you don't know about, that have been spoken in heavenly places, as well as things on the earth. Maybe you didn't have the kind of upbringing where you might have got a letter like that. But that doesn't matter, because God's word is far more powerful than a piece of paper. And as he speaks those truths over our lives, he brings us to a place of new life. He brings us to a place of an empty tomb. 
And so we can have confidence, not shame, not guilt, not fear. We can enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. A new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we can draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. See, the security of our inheritance, the security of the promises he's spoken over your life, nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with your effort. Nothing to do with your determination but to do with the faithfulness of the one who spoke over you when you were conceived, to when you were born, to when you found yourself in this hall at this time. God's word is eternal and is speaking over us today. We can live in his presence. We don't have to go in and out like the Mr. Sunshine and Mr. Rain, Mrs. Rain. We can live in his presence We don't have to be uh, tossed around by our feelings. And so what I'd like us to do is just we're going to break bread together when the children come back in. It's early yet. We don't need to rush. I believe that God wants to deal with some of our anxiety some of our troubles that seem so big that we hold before God and impact our connection with him. That we can know that he is faithful and he will see through the work that he's begun in each of us. So I'd like to pray pray for you and we're going to have a bit more time of worship, Um, and uh, we're going to see what God wants to do with the remainder of our time. Let's just pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thank you, Lord, that I don't have to doubt that love because you've shown me what love is. For this is how we know what love is. That whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord, that you gave yourself for us in our place when there was no one to stand alongside you, when you found yourself all alone, yet you chose to go through 
and to make that curtain be torn in two, that we can know your presence, that we can live in your presence, that we can stay in your presence and be changed and empowered by your presence. Lord, we reach out to you now. If you've been troubled by anxiety, I'd like to pray for you. If you've been troubled by anxiety and, uh, and worry about how God sees you, you just raise your hand and I'd like to pray for you. Thank you, Father. Father, we, we celebrate today that after your death on Friday, new life came on Sunday. We declare that the tomb was empty. We declare that where there's been despair, you not only bring hope, but you bring newness of life. So, Father, for those that have responded to you this morning, Lord, I ask you to deal with those anxieties as we pour them over to you. Lord, we declare that we believe in all three days of the Easter story. And no matter which day we find ourselves on, we know that the Sunday is coming, that there is a new life that you have for us. And Father, I just ask you to release now that spirit of praise as we worship you together, this fresh spirit of praise amongst us, as our hearts would bless you as we were singing, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that's within me, bless his holy name. As we were singing together, Lord, we would take hold of our souls and Lord, we would want to declare because of the working of your spirit in us, And because we know that you love, accept and forgive us just as we are. Hallelujah. Blessed be your name. Thank you, Lord.